We put our energy towards adjusting the external circumstances of our lives. Things come together, they fall apart, they come back together, and so on. And we keep tinkering, but despite our best efforts, there always seems to be unfinished business. And then, someone comes along with a teaching of meditation or dharma, and we meet with a radically different approach to life. We stop trying to fix everything. We turn inwards and start to work with, or play with, perception. And then, everything begins to change. Brought to you by Meditate with Ranga, Playing with Perception invites you to open to the theater of experience and play. Welcome to the first ever interview that we're doing at Meditate with Ranga. And I want to introduce Liz Farmer. So I met Liz through a dear friend of mine a little more than a year ago. And at the time, I was teaching meditation four nights a week for free after my day job, and I was loving it and was just curious to learn about what it might be to take it up as a profession somewhere down the line. So I was introduced to Liz, who was uh, teaching at 10% Happier at the time, and we had a lovely chat. She was open, present, and generous. And, you know, when you're considering taking on a new venture or a new direction in life or career, you have doubts. And I certainly had a ton of self-doubt at that time. And I just remember Liz being so encouraging and kind. So I'm very grateful for that. Now, Liz has a master's degree in education from Harvard and is a Buddhist chaplain and meditation teacher out in Maine in the United States. She is a lay teacher of Zen under the guidance of Roshi Joan Halifax. And like Roshi Joan, Liz has a strong penchant towards social justice. And this connection between Dharma and social action is part of what makes Liz such a compelling figure for me. The image of a Dharma practitioner as a meditating monk living in isolation has never really been the whole picture, but it's what so many assume when they hear that someone is engaged in meditation or Dharma practice. But Liz is living proof that a love of Dharma doesn't take you away from the world or away from the suffering of others. It rather sets the conditions for compassion to flow into the world of practical matters, uncontrived and unhindered. Liz is also the founder of the Portland Dharma House, a place of residence and refuge for local practitioners across various traditions. And she sits on the board of Spiritual Care Services of Maine. She has done a whole lot outside of the background I just gave, but now it's time to hear from Liz herself. So welcome, Liz. Thank you so much, Ranga. I'm so honored to be here as your very first guest. It's such a beautiful opportunity. Awesome. And we are honored to have you, and I'm super pumped. Um, so let me dive into a few questions for you that are kind of miscellaneous, just, just warm-up questions here. Mm. Um, so we'll start with what does the word dharma mean to you? Hmm. Hmm. That's that's a beautiful question and just makes me realize how often we use that word uh, without necessarily a precise definition. We throw it around a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, strictly speaking, of course, it means the teachings of Buddhism or of any wisdom tradition. Uh, I think 
in the context of socially engaged Buddhism and how we practice here at Portland Dharma House, uh, we usually speak about socially engaged Dharma or socially engaged practice, which as you mentioned in your introduction is bringing the teachings into a lived experience. So how do we actually embody these beautiful wisdom teachings we've been given over many centuries? What does that actually look like in practice in our daily lives, showing up as complex, messy human beings trying to live in alignment with some kind of ethical framework? So yeah, so I think of Dharma as a very big and broad word in that sense that it encompasses in a way it encompasses everything right but um more specifically practice yeah. mm, thank you and i'm curious to hear when you're teaching a student liz and particularly if it's someone who has no meditation experience where do you start like where do you start when it comes to this broad basket of mm. tools that are found in the dharma mm. Well, I should say I'm not currently doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one teaching. Most of the teaching that I'm doing is in the context of Upaya's chaplaincy program and a little bit in my own sangha. I'm, I've just kind of more officially been entrusted to teach Zen over the last four or five months. My uh, ordination was in August. So uh, I can say before I was officially a teacher, I, I was teaching also in the setting of uh, prison. I was working with incarcerated women who are essentially waiting to uh, re-enter into society after a period of incarceration. And in that audience where often I did have brand new folks to meditation and uh, people who were not necessarily exposed to any kind of practice like that before, uh, we started just with the basics. So uh, awareness of sensation, awareness of breath, awareness of thoughts. Um, and, and also I would say in that context, a lot of our practice was, was a listening practice, you know, being able to simply sit with attention on what other people are, are sharing. And we would kind of go in a circle and just bear witness to whatever each person wanted to bring up. And uh, so I, even in that setting, I would say my meditation teaching was not just about maybe what we think of as formal meditation, but, but really meditation as this larger practice that involves relationality and involves uh, not just how we relate inwardly, but also how we relate outwardly. So I hope that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm curious to hear um, because it's something that I try to do with my students from time to time, just have people share what's going on from their side. And I'm, I'm just curious to hear, like, what were the type of things that you would hear from these folks who were incarcer incarcerated? Because I would assume that in their day-to-day -day lives, they're not doing sharing circles or things of that nature, right? So what was that like? Absolutely. Yeah, no, that was one of the things that was actually very powerful. I think certainly I can just speak for myself. It was very powerful, powerful for me to hear these stories, but the feedback that I got from people in the group that it was also powerful for them because it was 
essentially the only space where they felt like they could be, uh, they could share and take in what others were saying without judgment, without having to kind of calculate a lot about who's listening, who has power in the room, you know, those kinds of questions that are so pervasive is my understanding in a prison context. So the things that they would share were, you know, everything from the daily experience they had being incarcerated, the many small ways that they felt their, their personal freedom inhibited. And also, and this was, again, what was beautiful about bringing meditation into that environment, a growing awareness that the more that we would meet with each other, this growing awareness of what I can't control is this toxic system that is a prison. But what I can control is how I'm relating to that system and how I'm resourcing myself as a human being to remember that I have inherent worth, that I am not the worst thing that I've ever done. And, uh, you know, to realize that there there were ways to be in that situation that that were more empowering, I guess is maybe how I would describe it. So um, yeah, so that was the most, I actually had one student in particular who was just, she was like the most intuitive right on Dharma student. And uh, so once she kind of got rolling, she would come every single time to every week that I would teach this class. And I began to turn to her actually to give the introduction to the class whenever there was a new person. And so it was really beautiful to hear her take in these teachings and then explain to her peers what the practice was for her and how she was using it in that environment, which was so much more potent in a way than anything I could say as someone who has never experienced incarceration. So um, she was really, a wonderful bridge, I think, for a lot of people in that context to think about what does meditation mean in in a place like that. Mm. That's so cool. Uh, and I've never actually been in any of those environments. I, I'm the type of guy like prison scares me. So like <laughs> if I watch a movie, unless it's like Shawshank Redemption and someone's escaping prison, like I tend to be tend to stay away from those kinds of like TV shows and movies. So I think it's really beautiful that you were able to bring the Dharma there and quick story. Um, when it comes to like sharing, yeah. I recently had, as you know, I got married recently. And so I had a bachelor party a few weeks before the wedding. And I was like, I really didn't want to have a bachelor party, but my best men and my groomsmen like really wanted to do it. And so I kept going back and forth and I kept saying no. And they kept saying, no, you got to do it. So finally, I was like, the only way I'm doing it is if we do this one thing, it's the only thing I really care to do with all you guys, which is let's sit in a circle and let's just have people share where they're at in their lives. And it was so interesting to see, um, now these guys aren't incarcerated, but you could tell like they they really had never done anything like that. Some, some of the guys had to get like stupidly drunk just to even like conjure up the courage to do something like that. And so that was a fail for a few of them, <laughs> but, but it was also really cool to see as the night kind of went on, just how human people were and, and how powerful they felt after they, they connected what was going on inside them to, to language and words. So, um, 
not as profound as a prison setting, but I think it's cool that, that you did that because I've also been in Dharma for 20 years and a lot of the sanghas and communities I would go to never gave, you know, the group a chance to share. We didn't even know that was something that could or should have been done. Um, so yeah, anyway, I think it's really cool. Um, all right. So what was something that you learned in the Dharma that really surprised you? That surprised me. Let's see. Um, uh, that's a great question. So one thing that comes to me is uh, I was in a retreat um, last year, I'm pretty sure it was, for we have in Zen tradition, we have a retreat every December that honors the Buddha's awakening and uh, called Rohatsu. And each year there's a different theme of this retreat. And last winter, we had the theme of the Mountains and Rivers Sutra, which is a, a text by Dogen, who is the founder of Japanese Soto Zen. So a very important figure in our lineage. And for whatever reason, I had never read this sutra. I had never connected with uh, this part of Dogen's teaching. And really what this sutra is about, which was both surprising, but also incredibly affirming for me of something that I think has been part of my practice and that I intuitively was bringing into the practice without even knowing that there were writings about this. Um, is it really is about the sentience, for lack of a better word, of all of the world. I mean, that's not the wrong way to put it. Uh, the sentience of like rocks and mountains and mountains and rivers, literally, um, and the ways that the natural world uh, informs our Dharma practice. And I think you know, in a certain way, as I studied this, I realized it makes sense because Zen was born out of a Taoist tradition. And so, of course, in Taoism, there's uh, this, this reverence for what we think of in kind of modern Western culture as inanimate objects. Um, but I just hadn't realized that that was a part of this tradition. And I feel like I've been studying it pretty deeply for a while now. So it shouldn't maybe have been a surprise, but it was a delightful surprise and just has impacted my practice over the last year in realizing uh, there is this greater kind of way of thinking uh, about what it means to awaken and that nature and mountains, rivers, all of nature is part of that process. Mm. Mm -hmm. Really cool. Uh, and I've heard just this teaching from a very high level, this idea that in Zen Buddhism, that inanimate objects can have sentience. And I, it always fascinated me and I always want to learn more, but I wonder if you could just kind of teach that to me. Cause I, I don't know if I think <laughs> about it correctly. Like I remember thinking about it as like, okay, all things are empty of an inherent existence. So can, if all things are just a way of looking, then perhaps anything could have sentience because nothing really has objective sentence that, sentience that exists on its own side anyway. So that, that was like one way that I was thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, but then I also remember my brother telling me 
that he was on retreat somewhere in the East Coast. I want to say Vermont, but I'm not sure. Somewhere with mountains. And he's his kuti, he was on self-retreat. And his like area that he lived at was had this porch area that was, you know, basically open. And you could see this mountain in the distance. And he said that through all his time there, slowly he started to feel that the mountain was supporting his practice somehow, which brings a whole different flavor to this. But yeah, I'm, I'm a newbie to this notion. So perhaps you could spell it out to me. I, I wish I had a deeper expertise. I mean, really, like I said, I've only been looking at this for the last year since I was in this retreat. So I don't know that I'm qualified to really teach it. Um, plus, I should just say as a caveat for anything that I say in reference to Dogen, he is, I don't know how familiar you are with him, but he is uh, a revered teacher who is also known for being sort of impenetrable. Uh, there's a way, which is what I think is so brilliant about him. There's a way that in his writing, he's constantly juxtaposing uh, kind of different ideas or concepts that force you in a way to transcend concepts altogether. So he'll, if you read through that sutra, it's like poetry, but he'll you can't really take anything literally because he'll he'll say one thing and you think oh okay i think i understand what he means about mountains and rivers and then he'll say the complete opposite and and then through the course of the sutra you get to something that feels like you're just experiencing reality as it is and this this non-dual understanding of we are all part of a seamless reality that is arising together and so distinctions of sentience and non-sentience aren't even really relevant right on on one level and then of course we do live in a relative world and we have to discern this is a rock this is an animal that has you know pain receptors and nerves and <laughs> we ethically there are different ways of relating of course to these pieces but um from an absolute perspective we're all here on this plane in this moment of space and time so i don't know if that mm. <laughs> really cool <laughs> i i'm i'm sure you won't mind i want to quickly bring up this sutra and just oh, see yeah, if we can yeah. throw some because it's the first episode, right? There's no rules. Why so. not? Yeah, I can actually, let me grab, um, if it's okay, I have a book yeah. that, um, yeah, explore. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so Norman Fisher actually gave a series of talks on this sutra at Upaya some years ago. And then one of his students compiled it into a beautiful book that actually has, it's a compilation of uh, his talks, but it it's created in a guide where it also gives practices that you can kind of try on to explore the meaning in the sutra. And so that's what I'm looking at right now. Yeah, that would be awesome for someone <laughs> like me who's never, uh, there was one Zen teacher that I've met in person who used to come when I was a kid to our Sunday school. Um, named Professor Spellmeyer. So he was a professor as well, but he would come in the full Zen garb and oh, yeah. and he was awesome. But I was so young. So 
Yeah, it'd be. I I've always been sort of like mystified by Zen, and the little I know of Dogen has always just seemed so cool. Um, but I haven't put it into practice. So I'm curious to hear, and and maybe I'll just include a, a quick thing I, I learned recently from a Theravada monk, um, who this monk is uh, was very interested in sort of the cosmology of Buddhism, like the different realms of existence, mm-hmm. and he talked about how Dogen once was looking at a river. And he said, for a human being, this appears as a river. For a hell being, it's like a flood of filth. Mm-hmm. You know, for a naga, it's, or, you know, celest- which is a type of celestial being, it's a crystalline palace. Mm-hmm. So it was like really interesting to hear that sort of interpretation or, or teaching of, of the six realms of existence. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, mm-hmm. Do- Dogen's really cool. Yes, I agree. And, you know, there are times I have no idea what he's talking about, you know, really. <laughs> and and yet the deeper that I study him, the more I just appreciate his uh, his teaching so much. So I'm trying to to think um, of of like, is there a pithy paragraph I can read you from this? Um, So yeah, so like here's here's a typical paragraph. Mountains walking is just like human walking. Accordingly, do not doubt mountains walking, even though it does not look the same as human walking. The Buddha's ancestors, the Buddha ancestors' words point to walking. This is fundamental understanding. Penetrate these words. And then he says. Because green mountains walk, they are permanent. Although they walk more swiftly than the wind, someone in the mountains does not notice or understand it. In the mountains means the blossoming of the entire world. People outside the mountains do not notice or understand the mountains walking. Those without eyes to see mountains cannot notice, understand, or hear this reality. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, it's just like, like, kind of like you were saying, like these different ways of understanding reality depending on your lens, depending on your view, right? And, but there, it's also just sort of full of contradiction and what does it mean for a mountain to be walking right and so his his teaching is just full of these koans of how how are we to understand this and and i think that's what's um what's beautiful about his teaching is it's the longer you sit with it the more something emerges but it's not even it's not conceptual it's maybe a more uh transcendent or non-conceptual Thing, which is what's so hard I, when I, <laughs> I have to admit the one hesitation I had about doing this interview with you is that I feel like Zen is so full of these sorts of teachings that are difficult to articulate and a lot of my practice has been informed by silence and um, you know when I prepare a Dharma talk it takes forever because it's such you just have to be so precise with language to support 
an illustration, a pointing to the moon uh, that, that actually evokes the transmissive quality of the teachings. And it's not easy to do that for me. I feel like I, you know, I wonder if I will ever fully be able to do that in a spontaneous way. <laughs> so it's just my name. That's a challenge of Zen for me is it's, um, yeah, words are limiting, right? Mm, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I'm just letting those words kind of like simmer and um, I'm certain I'm certainly not qualified to speak on Zen at all. Um, But it it makes me think of how, so this, I went on a retreat recently, as you know, and for our viewers, it was my first in-person retreat in a decade. And I had, there was a lot of um, drama in my mind about what might happen at this retreat. I had really high expectations. And I had been listening to a lot of talks about Nibbana and unbinding and what could this mean. Um, and I'm just like, I went into the retreat like, like I'm ready to wake up. Like I want to wake up. <laughs> I've been practicing for long enough. I'm ready to wake up. And one of the things that the teacher Willa Reed said on, I think the first or second day is from the, the suttas, the earlier discourses, um, where the Buddha apparently had said something like, Nibbana is touched in the body. And she was like, this is an enigmatic phrase. I don't know what it means, but perhaps it points to the fact that it's not concepts. This is not conceptual. And, I had heard, of course, this notion that Dharma is not conceptual, Nibbana is not conceptual, Nirvana, whatever you want to call it. I've heard that a million times. But when she said that, it really just made me kind of like snap. Like all those talks that I had been listening to were really going into my head and, and doing all this work in my head. And it really just allowed me to let that go and, and come into the body. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, even even hearing Dogen for me, a complete beginner to Zen, there's just there's a little bit of that um, relaxing of trying to figure it out, you yeah. know. So yeah, exactly. I think that is so well put. It's it's the invitation to just let it wash over you, and somehow this this other way of relating or being with the teaching emerges naturally. And, and it's so, I feel like, you know, perhaps people like you and me that have, are, you know, have been through college education or graduate education are at a disadvantage because we're, we're so full of concepts, right? We, we, uh, we don't easily have beginner's mind. And plus we're, we're used to thinking everything is neck up, right? Everything uh, sort of a intellectual exercise. And so I have a lot of humility that I bring to teaching because I feel like literally every day, every time I sit, I am having to learn what it means to just be in my body without adding on layers of meaning, conceptual understanding, all of these pieces that are, that are, you know, is it helpful to know how to work with that? But fundamentally, I think the practice is about learning to show up in a um, 
in an embodied way, right? Mm. Like, it doesn't come naturally <laughs> to me. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, I I can totally relate to what you're saying. Um, you know, I was reflecting on my my own practice recently for this talk that I wrote. Um, and I normally don't write anything. It, it's for me, it's more off the cuff tip, typically. But you know, for getting the company started, I wanted to put some core ideas on on paper. And so I'm I'm focusing meditate with Ranga a lot on the joy of the jhanas, mm-hmm. um, so these deep meditative states and. My first memory with Piti, which refers to this physical bliss and well-being that arise, that is the characteristic of the first jhana. My first memory was when I was about five years old watching Pocahontas in movie theaters when it came out. And I wrote something down. I was like, I didn't know what this thing was, this wave of bliss, this joy that ran through my body, but I just enjoyed it. And after I wrote that, I was thinking about how now like years later, as I learned the Dharma and learned about these concepts, when this thing would arise, it was so hard to just enjoy it because you're trying to, it's like, what is this? You're excited. You want it to, you know, you're fearful. But just that capacity that young children have to to be with things and not question and, mm-hmm. and just enjoy. Um, it's so precious. And you're right. Like sometimes intelligence is correlated, or not just intelligence, but the way we're conditioned in school is is correlated with, the hindrances and and things that we have to unlearn as practitioners. So you're absolutely right on that. And I'm going to throw on a sweater because I'm feeling a little cold, but maybe would you mind um, in that book that you have, is there any talk about how to put that statement from Dogen into practice? I'm I'm curious. Uh, From Dogen's words or from... Yeah, did, did did I understand that correct? That book does it does it have like practical applications for for Dogen's words? It does. They're not uh, they're not from Dogen. They're from this student of Norman Fisher, who essentially um, chopped up his talks in these like one page segments, and then after each one has uh a little practice that that helps you to integrate it so let me i while you're putting on your sweater i will just find one let's see yeah i'm sure if dogan were alive he he would be like nothing else needs to be said don't don't ask how to practice this just you know (laughs) but as a typical human i'm i'm curious to hear that Yeah, here's one that I like a lot. The suggested practice, the the name of it is, how old are we? Right, because there's, you know, we think of mountains as being so old. Uh, And here's the practice. Try thinking about mountains and rivers as yourself and notice how everything becomes quite personal. What if you no longer identified with your body your ideas, beliefs, possessions, nationality, gender, or family? What if instead you identified with the ongoing nature of living and dying? Think about this deeply. What would it mean to your daily life? Mm, Thank you. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so maybe we'll just let that sit there for our listeners. 
and we'll make a hard segue from Dogen to our next question. <laughs> uh, maybe it's related. What is the biggest mistake that you see meditators make? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting choice of words. Uh, you may not know, or maybe you do, that Dogen also has a very famous teaching where he talks about um, our practice as one continuous mistake. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so there's that sort of context, I think. But uh, I think what you mean is something maybe a little bit more practical. Like, uh, I can certainly speak from the perspective of having been a meditation coach for several years at 10% Happier. I was constantly in contact with folks who were uh, learning the practice for the first time. And in their case, the, the way that we offered meditation was coming from a theoretically secular place. And uh, even though of course these, the secular version of this practice is rooted in uh, non-secular versions of the practice, but I would say one of the things that would come up a lot was uh, the belief that meditation is about clearing your mind. And so the mistake that people would make is to think the way to do the practice correctly is to not think or to somehow just have your mind be blank. And, and the reason that's such a pernicious misunderstanding, I think, is that to me at least, and there may be other, other humans who have some magical powers around this, but for most of us, I think getting rid of thoughts is just not realistic. It's even for advanced practitioners, thinking is happening all the time. The mind is just made to produce thoughts. Uh, but of course, the practice of meditation is about noticing, at least partly about noticing what are the thoughts that are there? How are we relating to the thoughts? How can we kind of rest in the observation of what's happening as opposed to getting caught up in the thoughts and so um, yeah so I used to talk about that a lot with new practitioners just to reassure them you're not doing anything wrong the thinking is actually necessary for meditation to happen because it's in the noticing of the thought and how you come back to whatever your object of attention is that is so important in cultivating practice so mm, yeah now I tend to yeah I, I 100% agree with that idea and, and I would say even in jhanas in deep meditative states thoughts can be there and one of the things my, my teacher Robert Bea said that I really liked is you know why why are we evaluating meditation in terms of how much thinking is going on and why do we look at less thinking as better than more more thinking. Mm -hmm. And in the context of jhana practice, it's, it's really important. And it's interesting because there are so many teachers who do seem to talk about practice that involves a very quiet mind and stillness of mind. And, and I think there's certainly a place and a possibility for that. But as someone who, um, like you, like thoughts happen for me when I meditate, you know, pretty much the whole time. Um, and what, what I've come to experience is sometimes even the most deepest, profound bliss and insight that has occurred for me in meditation is still accompanied by thinking. 
and even the hindrances. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really important thing and it's so deeply entrenched and rooted. And it's the number one reason people don't even try meditation. It's because they think it's about having a blank mind, which just feels rigid and impossible, which, you know, it kind of is. So, um, so I love yeah. that. Thank you. Well, and I, I do just want to clarify, I, I, I really think it's important to cultivate some attentional stability and balance. It's not that, uh, it's not that concentration or the capacity to have a certain steadiness with the practice is. I'm not dismissing that. Uh, I actually think that's fundamental to then be able to, like you say, uh, attain these other um, levels of insight, or even just to to be able to meet suffering with a degree of equanimity and care right if we're totally scattered and our, our minds are pulled every which way we're not going to be able to uh, really make any um, headway with <laughs> with understanding suffering right but it's just that yeah i just just the notion that thinking is somehow wrong mm. seems important to otherwise yeah. we're just like beating ourselves up all the time why am i still Totally. having thoughts as opposed to this is natural and there's a way to find attentional balance even in the midst of that of that like you're, you're saying totally no that, that's definitely a good clarification and certainly there there is a place for deep stillness and retreat from thinking in the practice um it's just a shame that well i think it's i think it's just very what i find from teaching is and also from being a student um you know, it's just, it's just natural when you hear a concept to take it to the hundredth degree, like go from zero to a hundred, right? Rather than seeing that there's a spectrum. Um, and so there's a spectrum of thinking, right? And, and so like, I, I always imagine that some of these deeper states would have zero thinking. So um, even in my youth, when I would be practicing, I would just doubt myself and question everything I was doing because I couldn't escape that level of thinking. Instead of just enjoying what was there which for me has become the path into more depth just mm -hmm. enjoying um or not just but primarily enjoying <laughs> um cool all right so i want to ask you about miracles yeah. what has been the biggest miracle in your life hmm. uh i promise i'm not gonna talk about dogen and every single question <laughs> 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 but it's just funny because that word does remind me of him as well because he he spoke about uh the great miracle as being a moment of practice actually um a moment of practice or just being with the breath this this um miracle of being fully experiencing um experience in our life with full presence and um Anyway, that, but I think, again, what you're pointing to is not necessarily like a Dharma teaching miracle, but more like what have I experienced as miraculous in, in the course of my life? Is that, is that the question? Well, it's like, you can answer the question any way you want, you know, <laughs> and I, I almost, when I heard you, when I hear your answer of Dogen, uh, from Dogen, I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind speaking about perhaps a mo such a moment in your own practice and how that was experienced. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, and again, I'm not a scholar, I'm not a 
I, I feel like such a novice with Dogen, so I'm, I'm reluctant to say anything with authority about his teaching, but I'm also so fascinated by it that I, and that's why it seems to keep coming up because I think about him a lot and I, I love sitting with his teaching. So I, I, one of the things I, I so appreciate about Dogen is he talks about practice and enlightenment as actually being the same thing. That when we are, that there's no, he's, he, he has a beautiful, uh, another beautiful sutra on continuous practice where he talks about uh, what he calls the circle of the way and that practice meditation and enlightenment are essentially a circle that are that are always co-arising in a way and so our normal way of thinking is that practice is something that we do over decades or you know you like we were saying there's all these stages or there's this idea that it's a linear process and maybe after decades or even lifetimes we step into enlightenment right and his teaching really threw that on its head and said no in in any moment enlightenment is possible um and so uh, going back to this notion of, of the great miracle of practice, I think it's any moment that we are living in the embodiment of that teaching, which in an absolute way is all the time, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> but in a relative way, it's, it's when can we drop all of our ideas about what we think is happening and just be in the moment that we're in fully and without adding anything, right? So that is the great miracle. And I've had experiences of that on retreat, I think, um, you know, where usually it's after several days of silence, even though teaching is this can happen in any moment. For me, it usually takes some preparation of dropping in deeply to the body. And after several days of being in silence and doing the Zen forms with other practitioners, I'll have glimpses of what feels like a non-dual awareness or a deep connection with all beings or a sense of, of non-separation. And it does feel like a miracle. I mean, it really is. Uh, it's like the, the long route that maybe people who take drugs <laughs> experience, but I'm not a, I'm not someone who does that. So my my root is meditation, and, but just mm. this embodied understanding of non-separation. Mm. So I'm very curious to dial a little bit deeper into this. Um, what is that like? Like, does your does your body does something happen in your body? Does your body disappear? Like, when you when you talk about this lack of separation does does your viewpoint change like is is your frame of reference still in your body is it somewhere else like yeah i'm just curious if we could dive a little bit deeper sure yeah this is one of the reasons that i i really appreciate zen as a as a lineage it's one of the things that has supported my practice in zen is that when we do retreats and i mean really it's <clears throat> any time that we're in the zendo but 
we go even deeper when we're on retreats is that there are all of these Zen forms and rituals that we do that are designed to support a sense of what we call one body. So you may have, even if you've never been on a Zen retreat, um, you may have some sense of this from other people's stories or, you know, videos or whatever. But there's a, you know, like we do a lot of bowing simultaneously. We do prostrations together. We have uh, meals that are done in a very prescribed, ritualized way where everyone in the Sangha is doing things in the same way at the same time with the same ritualized words. Uh, there's just everything in the practice environment is supporting a feeling of connection and kind of, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, um, erasing a sense of individuality. Everything is, is set up to support just being with what's happening without reifying your sense of I'm an individual self who's so different from all these other people and I've got my personal likes and dislikes and needs and wants and stories and all the things. You're just one more person wearing black, <laughs> doing the walking, doing the sitting, doing the breathing, doing the prostration. And there's something about that form in the strictness of kind of being in lockstep with this room full of people that allows for this great freedom to arise, allows for a sense that there's uh, this connective tissue, if that makes any sense, between everyone in the room. And that extends outwardly too. I mean, it's one of my favorite things on retreat actually, to go for walks and notice flowers or ants or the bunny rabbit going across the road and to feel that same connective, connective tissue with them as well. So I hope that answer makes some kind of sense, <laughs> but that's the best that I can describe how it feels to me. Mm, beautiful, thank you, Liz. Mm. Hmm, okay. I have a series of uh, kind of kind of more personal questions but also fun and quick okay. um all right so let's dive in if you could be remembered for one thing what would it be showing up with love hmm. in your i'm curious to hear like in your childhood adolescence etc what did people misunderstand about you the most misunderstand about me um hmm. I grew up in a in a very rural part of Maine where there was um you know being liking school going to school being smart was not valued and uh I felt a lot of pressure I think to sort of fit in by downplaying the parts of myself that were academically curious and kind of you know I was a huge reader and um yeah so I don't know if misunderstanding is quite the word 
but I did feel like there was a disconnect in how I oriented internally toward a love of learning and just curiosity about the world and what I, how I felt I needed to show up in order to be liked or to have friends. Mm. And yeah. So that's what I would say. Thank you. Um, yeah. And when I hear that, it just, it just sucks to be like young and not, not sure of how to be yourself and you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And how much we feel like belonging is it in, in many cases, I think it trumps what we feel is actually our authentic expression. You know, we, we privilege group belonging for good reasons. You know, we're hardwired to need that. But sometimes it's at the sacrifice of showing up authentically. Or I think of your friends who struggled over how to say what they were really feeling, you know, in that bachelor party moment or needed to get drunk in order to do it. And um, aren't we always sort of worrying about how we'll be understood or how we'll be perceived by other people? Um, and I think that's one of the beautiful things the Dharma has to offer too, is just reassurance that we have inherent worthiness, we have inherent goodness, no matter what other people <laughs> might think. Mm. Yeah. So, I went yeah, on this is supposed to be our rapid fire. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, this does not need to be a rapid fire <laughs> yes. at all. And I actually um did reflect as I was writing some of these questions of when I was asked to do rapid fire questions for a couple of interviews and I sucked at it. Mm. And I've recognized how like some celebrities and stuff are really good at those kinds of questions, but um, sometimes you just need to say more. And, and even now it's like, I know I should be moving on to the next question technically, <laughs> but I want to stay at this point. Um, my, so this, this teacher, Willa Reed, um, who led, I was one of the teachers at the retreat I went to, um, during my first interview with her, I came in and I was actually really nervous cause I was, I wanted to ask, uh, some questions that were very sort of personal to me. And, you know, she, she just helped me settle and she just threw in something that, that wasn't the most relevant thing to what I was kind of trying to say at the time, but it really stuck with me and, and has, it was just like cool to hear. She said at the monastery where she was ordained during her time as a nun, over time, it was so interesting to see people become more and more idiosyncratic and quirky as time went on because their inhibitions just kind of melted away and they just became more themselves um yeah and, and going back to the bachelor party story one of the reasons that one of the things that inspired that for me is you know most of my my buddies don't really practice dharma right and and some of them are kind of wading into those waters because of me or some of them have that interest but most don't and i i once was hanging out with one of my uncles uh, my family friends who we call uncle and uh there was a group of other older men there and they were having lunch or something and just saying jokes the whole time the way that men can nothing personal and afterwards i was talking to my uncle and there was some there was a big life event that had happened for one of the friends that was there and i asked him what he thought about it and he said he had never he had no idea mm -hmm. and i was just thinking about like how sad it was to 
these were friends that had known each other for like 50 years. And they, when they got together, which they do frequently, they, they just didn't talk about things that maybe really mattered or maybe could have been helpful for them to share. So when I reflected on my friends, I could start to see that same thing happening in a way. Uh, because when they get together, usually it's a party or they're going out or it's a happy hour and people don't really talk like that unless they happen to be like smoking weed together one-on-one or like super drunk. And, and I was just trying, and I'm not in those situations anymore because I don't smoke or drink anymore and feeling that disconnection. So that's what made me really want to have that moment with my friends to, to share and open up. Um, but yeah, and I think the last thing I want to say about this is I found that after I came back from retreat, I was like struggling to see where I fit in again. Cause I was like, well, now I feel even more like compelled to practice and make my life more like a retreat as much as I can. And, you know, just even, I just been married, just gotten married and like, you know, it's like, how do we figure that out in the context of marriage and work and, and my friendships. And this happened for about two weeks. And then this week that kind of melted away. And I realized the reason for this is just because I've been able to practice more this week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like my, after I came back from retreat, I couldn't quite find the same energy to practice like formal meditation. And, um, you know, there's a time difference and I was more sleepy. And a lot of times when I would sit, I would feel that sleepiness. And then I'd have a meeting and I'd be like, man, it, it's not like I have nine hours to practice, you know? And this week, just feeling the joy and ease of, of the mind kind of turning inwards and touching that more innate sense of home and that sense of belonging, that fear of not belonging just kind of melted away. And now I just feel like I belong again, you know? <laughs> and it's just because I was practicing, <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, I love that, Sandra. You know, you're making me think too about one of one of the favorite parts of what we do here at the Portland Dharma House for me is we have a morning sit where we practice in silence for 30 minutes. This is all on Zoom since the pandemic. And then there's an optional like 15 minute or so practice discussion where people can just share anything that came up for them during their practice that morning. And what has developed over time, there's usually 15 or so people in the room. So enough enough people that there's a critical mass, but also small enough that there's room for quite a bit of intimacy and vulnerable sharing. And it's so beautiful to witness over time how people will share things quite vulnerably often, you know, the the parts of themselves that maybe there might be a little bit of shame or embarrassment or, you know, I'm really struggling with this thing in my practice right now. And how much almost to a person, you, you see the resonance and you see that, the person who's speaking, uh, expressing something that we all feel, that we all experience in our life at some point. And the more that we do that, the more that that happens, it's like a bringing to the surface these things that are just fundamentally part of being human that we might think of as separating us or like, I'm the only one who has that. I'm the only one who does that or has that embarrassing impulse or whatever. (laughs) And to realize, we all share this huge spectrum of experiences and challenges and and all of these things and so it's just grown into something that i think is quite valuable for people because of that reassurance that actually the net of belonging is very wide 
you know, there's, there's nothing, unless it's really causing harm to someone else in the Sangha, there's nothing you can bring up in this space that will make you an outsider, even though you might feel like it as you're sharing from that tender place. And it ends up creating a field of acceptance that is quite palpable. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, when we hear the suffering of others, we honor them, right? Mm -hmm. There's just like a natural movement in the heart to honor and love people when, when we hear of their suffering. But when yes. we think of our own suffering, we, we judge ourselves. Um, it's, it's so, and that's part of what, it, like you say, that practice is so beautiful to do that in a group. It really helps you understand quite a bit. And unfortunately, most of us suffer in silence. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. Very cool. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> are you good right now? Do you want to take a quick break or how are you feeling? Totally up to you. Yeah. Um, I'm going to just take a drink of water. I'm fine yeah. otherwise. Yeah. Okay, cool. Great. Um, and please yeah. feel free to drink water throughout. And I have, <laughs> it's funny because I have a thermos of tea and I'm nervous about taking sips too, but no, we should. <laughs> we should yeah, well, <clears throat> yeah, mainly it's just, I, I find this conversation so compelling and I, I want to be fully present and I feel like, yeah, there's just something, even if it's a very mild multitasking, I just want to not stray from attention of what you're so anyway i have that too there's there's always something about keeping the body still that that helps mm -hmm. right um and yeah this is fun this is yeah. like this is practice I, I really feel that way um i feel like in another i don't know maybe there's like a companion thing you do at some point i would love to be on the interviewing side of things too like i find as you're speaking i have all these questions i want to ask you and i know that's not what we're doing here, but um, it's just really interesting to notice that. And, and also because every time we've talked about Dharma, I have found uh, that exchange to be so fruitful. And so anyway, mm. um, yeah. Well, you know what, Liz, like when, when I, this is the first one, right? And mm -hmm. I think when I started off, I had this idea of there's me, there's you, and then there's the audience. And then the more I go on, there's, it's just me and you. And it's starting to feel better and more natural, you know? And so I would say, like, we can always do this again later, right? So I would say, if you want to ask me something, feel free to. There's And, and I have seen how there's, there's two kind of interviewers that I'm thinking about. One that is very rigid and he never says anything. He just goes question to question. And it makes for great interviews. But there's another who who there's like, there's more of these longer discussions and they're also great. So mm -hmm. just don't feel like, just feel like there's no rules. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's just have fun and we can always do it again if, if time permits. Thank you so much for watching. And if you want to learn more and get some free resources, check out my website, meditatewithranga.com.